Take your copy of God's Word and open it with me to the Gospel of John as we go back to our study of that great book. And this morning we are in chapter 3. We'll start in verse 17. John chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. Three words that we hear often, before and after. Every now and then I will hear people talk about Homestead before and after Hurricane Andrew. Sometimes someone will restore an old car and you'll see pictures of it before and after. Sometimes there'll be an advertisement on TV and you'll see pictures of a person before and after they use that product. And then you have all of the before and after memes that are online. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you seen them? For example, before and after coffee. Anybody here that can relate to that one? Or for some people, you have before and after work. I think that depends on where you work, but there's another one. Or how about this one? Before and after kids. Now, I have four, they're wonderful, have as many as you can, but I can relate to this one. And then here's one of a teacher before and after the school year. Being married to a teacher, I can attest as well that that one is true. Well, as you can see, there can be a very big difference between before and after. And I tell you this because there is a before and after effect when it comes to the gospel. Whenever God saves someone, there is, there always is that before and after effect. 2 Corinthians 9.15 says, if anyone's in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are made new. There's before and after and this before and after theme is very prominent in the passage that we're going to look at this morning. Let me remind you that John is commenting on the conversation that took place between Jesus and Nicodemus at the beginning of John 3. Jesus said to Nicodemus, one of the most well-known and well-respected religious leaders of his day, you... Yes, even you, Nicodemus, must be born again. He then proceeds to tell us how this new birth is possible. We saw John 3, 16. If you recall, I told you that was your homework, to memorize that verse if you don't already know it. How many of you know John 3, 16 by heart? Many of you do. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. This is good news. This is the greatest news. But as we will see, everyone responds to this news in one of two ways. Either by faith or unbelief. And this is why we see two groups of people throughout the passage that we're going to look at this morning. In fact, verse by verse, John just keeps 
emphasizing before and after, before and after. These two groups of people, in one group, he who does not believe. In the other group, he who believes. In the first group, those who perish. In the next group, those who have everlasting life. In the first group, those who are condemned versus those who are saved. Those who are condemned already versus those who are not condemned. In the before group, those who love darkness and hate the light. In the after group, those who come to the light. In the first group, he says their deeds are evil, but in the after group, they do the truth. In the first group, their deeds are exposed. In the after group, it is found that their deeds have been done in God. And so we see this theme before and after, before and after. Now, I present it this way because I believe it will help us as we're studying this passage if we realize Every time John makes one of these statements, whether on the left side or on the right side, every time he does so, he's referring to that entire group of people. And what applies to one person in this group applies to the whole group. You'll notice there are only two groups, not three. You'll notice that everybody, according to John, belongs to one or the other, and no one belongs to both groups at the same time. And so we see this distinction of before and after. We're going to see this morning in our text what John has to say about these two groups, and then at the end there's some practical applications that I want to make. But first of all, we see the present reality of the lost, the present reality of those who are lost. Look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, verse 16 tells us why Jesus came into the world. Verse 17 tells us what was not the reason why Jesus came. He did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world, which means everyone in the world, yes, can be saved. But the key word in verse 17, and really in this entire passage, is that word condemn. The Greek word krino is the same word that translates to judge, and it means to not just find someone guilty, but in this case, to find someone guilty and then try to carry out the punishment. In this case, to condemn, it means to destroy someone, to try to tear them down. Now, if God had sent his son into the world to condemn the world, he would have been justified in doing so because that is what we deserved. But that is not what he did. And By the way, if Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, guess what? Neither did we. Yes, we should talk about sin. Yes, we should call it what it is. Yes, we should be willing to call people to repentance. And yet, even when we speak the truth, Paul said we are to speak the truth in love, and we do so always with the goal of lifting people up, never tearing people down. Jesus came not to condemn the world, John said, but to save the world. That was his mission. That ought to be our mission as well. Now, some people read verse 17, and they get a little confused by this because 
Just a few chapters later, in chapter 9, verse 39, Jesus said, for judgment, and he uses the exact same word as we see for that word condemn in verse 17, he says, for judgment I came into the world. Now, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Versus, for judgment I came into the world. Somebody might read this on the surface, and they might say, well, pastor, which one is it? Did he come to judge, or did he not come to judge? Did he come to condemn or not? Well, the answer and the explanation is in the following verse. Look at verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned. We'll come back to that statement in a moment. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Verse 18 is kind of like two sides to a coin. He who believes is not condemned. Flip it over. He who does not believe is condemned already. And I want you to notice what John does not say. He does not say, if you are sinning and you keep on sinning, and if you have a whole bunch of sins, or if you commit what we think is one of the big ones, you will be condemned. He says, the one who does not believe is condemned. And so, why does not believing result in condemnation? Let me put it this way. Imagine that there is a disease that is 100% curable. Imagine that every person who has this disease, who receives the cure, is healed 100% of the time without exception. Now imagine there is a man who has this disease and he dies of this disease simply because he does not believe in the cure and he refuses the treatment. I ask you, did that person really die of the disease? Medically speaking, perhaps. Practically, no. Practically, that person died because someone offered them a cure and they refused to accept it. Likewise, we have this disease that's called sin. And yes, there is a cure for God so loved the world He gave His only begotten Son. And this cure works 100% of the time. Whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And just like that man who dies of a disease needlessly because he does not believe in the cure, it's the person who rejects God's cure for sin by not believing in it who is condemned. And notice what John says. He says that this person is condemned already. In other words, right now that person is under condemnation. They're already dead in their trespasses. They're already spiritually blind. He said they're already slaves to sin. All of that is true now. You see, Jesus did not come to condemn the world. He didn't come for the purpose of condemning the world. But the coming of Jesus did have the effect of revealing that condemnation that is already upon sinful man. I heard a story about a man whose wife drug him to an art museum, and he did not want to be there one bit. But he followed her around, grumbling through the halls of that museum the whole time. And then a few hours later, finally, when it was time to go, 
that man said, you know, I don't care much for those old pictures. And his wife said, honey, those old pictures aren't on trial. Those who look at them are the ones on trial. And you know, that's true about a lot of things. If a person is bored at the Sixteen Chapel, or Sistine Chapel uh, I would argue that that reveals that that person is a lousy art critic. If a person isn't the least bit excited about hearing some great symphony like the New York Hill Philharmonic, I would argue that that reveals that that person is a lousy critic of music. If a person sees the glory of God in creation, if they see the order and the design of God in the universe, if a person sees the love of God at Calvary, if they see the power of God in the resurrection and There's no sense of awe. There's no wonder. They see no beauty. They're not interested. That reveals who they are. This is why John says, the one who does not believe is already condemned. When someone rejects Christ, they reveal who they are. They reveal by doing so that they are already condemned. And yes, there will come a time in the future a time of judgment, when we stand before God, and that sentence is pronounced ultimately and formally. But even though this happens in the future, this condemnation, John says, is a present reality. He said the one who does not believe is condemned already. Now, that leads to a question. Why will a person not believe? What's the real reason why? He tells us in verse 19, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Here's how we know that someone is condemned. He said light has come into the world. We know from John chapter 1, he's referring to Jesus, the true light who came into the world. He said light came But men loved darkness rather than light. Notice it's not just that they are in the darkness. No, he said they love darkness. They actually prefer the darkness to the light. Okay, well, why do they love the darkness? Look at verse 20. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. John says, here's the real issue. He says, everyone practicing evil. He's talking about everybody in that first group, the before group. He said, they practice evil, and the real reason why they do not come to the light is because ultimately they do not want their evil to be exposed. Let me illustrate this as simply as I can. I can get up in the middle of the night And I can walk into a dark bathroom, and as long as the lights are turned off, I can say anything about myself I want to, as long as it's dark. I can walk into that bathroom, and I can say that I'm clean, and I don't need a shower. I can say that I've already shaved. I can tell myself that I've got a head full of hair. I can tell myself I'm as handsome as Brad Pitt. I can say whatever I want 
until I turn on the light. And the moment I turn on the light, all of a sudden I am exposed and all of a sudden it is revealed that all of those things I said about myself were untrue. Likewise, a man or a woman can say anything they want to about themselves as long as it is dark. A man can say to himself, I am good, I am generous, I am kind, I'm honest. He can say all of that and so much more until someone turns on the light. Until that man's righteousness is seen in light of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the one who always told the truth, the one who always blessed those who cursed him, the one who always turned the other cheek, the one who always resisted temptation, the one who always obeyed his Father's will. All of a sudden, when you compare that person to Christ, John says it's like turning on the light and everything gets exposed and suddenly this person sees themselves as they really are. When I look at my life compared to the light of Christ, I can no longer make myself feel better about myself by comparing myself to others. When you turn on the light of Christ, all of a sudden I see why Isaiah said our righteousness is like filthy rags compared to holy God. And by the way, this is why a person is not going to come to Christ until they recognize their sin, until they come to see that their sin, yes, is so bad that it took the death of Jesus on the cross to atone for it. This is why it is not possible for someone to even believe in Christ until their sin has been exposed. One necessitates the other. One requires the other. Now, you, you put all together what John is saying in these verses, and here's what he does. He makes a statement, and then he explains why that statement is true. And then in the next statement, he explains why that statement is true. And so on, and so on. Notice what he does. The man of this world is condemned. Why? Because he does not believe. Why not? Because he loves darkness. Why does he love darkness? Because his deeds are evil, and he doesn't want them to be exposed. He would rather remain in that dark room without turning on the light, rather than see himself as he truly is. This is John's line of reasoning. Now, based on that reasoning, there are a couple of things that we can say about the people who belong to that first group, the before group. We can say that a person rejects Christ because they love sin. That's the problem. The problem is not that the gospel is too hard to understand. The problem is not a lack of evidence. 
for the Word of God or for Jesus as the Son of God or His death or burial or resurrection. No, the problem is evil in the human heart. John says the problem is man loves his sin and he would rather stay in the dark rather than it be exposed. Now that leads to a second thing. How one responds to Jesus reveals what is in one's heart. How a person responds to the gospel reveals who they already are, what is already there. Ultimately, man does not believe because he doesn't want a divine boss telling him what to do. That's the issue. Ultimately, man does not believe because he doesn't want to be confronted about the hatred or the greed or the pride or the lust that is in his heart. And this is the present reality of the lost, that they are condemned because they do not believe. They do not believe, therefore they prefer the darkness because they love their sin and don't want it to be exposed. Now that's the present reality, John says, of every person you know apart from Christ. But then we see something else in this passage. We also see the glorious reality of the saved. The glorious reality of the saved. Go back to verse 18, and there's that statement at the beginning of that verse. He who believes in him is not condemned. This is that second category, the after category. He is not condemned. Say those two words with me. Not condemned. One more time. He's not condemned. Oh, that God would brand those words on our minds and on our hearts. We sang that song earlier, no condemnation now I dread. This is why. We read this statement, we think about what Paul said in Romans 8 verse 1. He said, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now let's be really honest with ourselves. Sometimes we have this tendency of condemning ourselves for sin that God has already forgiven, don't we? I've done it. I imagine you've done it. We all face that temptation. And so even as believers, we have to constantly preach the gospel to ourselves. We have to constantly remind ourselves that for the child of God, there is no condemnation because the condemnation for our sin was already placed on Christ for us at the cross. And so when we read those words, no condemnation, uh, that means there are some things that God does not do when he saves someone. In fact, let me just put it this way. When you are saved God does not put you on probation. He doesn't put you on probation. That person on probation is still guilty. The sentence for whatever crime they have done, it dangles over them. If they take one wrong step, all of a sudden that sword falls down upon them. This is not how God deals with his children. He doesn't put us on probation and when God saves someone, I'll tell you what else he doesn't do. He doesn't give us parole, where we serve part of the sentence, and maybe he lets us out early. But once again, we're still guilty, 
And that record of everything we've done, it follows us everywhere we go. And there's still that threat that if we fall out of line, the rest of that sentence will fall down upon us and our rights are still limited. Folks, this is not how God deals with us either. When he saves someone, he doesn't put them on probation and he doesn't put them on parole. What he gives them is pardon. He dismisses the case He clears the record and he wipes the slate clean, thus no condemnation. Amen. And this is just the beginning. Look at verse 21. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. This person in the after group this person does the truth and by the way i have to point out notice there is not my truth your truth here the world has developed a habit of speaking about the truth in this way no there's just the truth and john says he who does the truth comes to the light now notice this person is not afraid to come to the light Because they're not afraid of what the light is going to expose. And it's not that we're perfect, because we're not. It's not that we don't sin anymore, because we still do. But this person is not afraid to come to the light, because they know what will be exposed, and it will be seen clearly that their works have been done in God. In other words it will be seen that God is working in them. We remember what Paul said in Galatians 2.20, for I am crucified with Christ and yet I live, but not I, but Christ who lives in me. It's Christ in me. And it really is true. If there is anything in me that is good at all, it's not me. It is Christ in me. John says this person comes to the light because it is clearly seen God is at work. Their works have been done in God. This reminds me of that famous preacher of old by the name of Harry Ironside. At one time, he was preaching in the city of San Francisco, and in the middle of his sermon in this one church, someone got up, walked down the aisle, and handed him a piece of paper. This individual was an atheist who was handing Harry Ironside an invitation to a debate at a specific time and place. Well, Harry Ironside, he read the letter And then he read it out loud for everybody to hear. And he said, I will accept this invitation, but on one condition. He said, you bring with you one man or woman whose life was ruined by sin, but they were transformed by the power of your atheism. And he said, I will bring with me 100 people whose lives were ruined by sin, but they were transformed by the power of the gospel. Well, that debate never took place (laughs) because the man who invited him to it knew that he could never meet that condition. I said at the beginning of this message, when God saves someone, 
there is always before and after. And before we close, I want to just share with you some applications that God put on my heart looking at this whole passage, some things that we can take away from all of this. Uh, Four things I can tell you based on what we have read. First of all, don't take rejection personally. Don't take rejection personally. When you share the gospel with others, and many people, if not most people, do not believe, can I remind you, it's not about you. It's not about the messenger So don't take rejection personally, but then also don't think there's something wrong with the gospel. Yes, the gospel is good news. Yes, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And that is true when people believe it. But that's also just as true when people don't. And number three, this is so important. Remember, the real battlefield is the heart, not the mind. Yes, there are times where people have questions, good questions, honest questions, and we should do whatever we can within our ability to answer those questions. But even as we do so, we need to remember this. Ultimately, the real issue here is not settled in the mind, it is settled in the heart. Whether or not someone believes, whether they place their faith in Christ comes down to not if all of their questions got answered, but whether or not they are willing for God to reign over them. Whether they are willing to allow Jesus to sit on the throne of the heart It really is possible for a person to intellectually agree with the gospel and yet not follow Jesus and be saved. So, yes, the mind is important. Yes, we answer questions, but we better remember the real battlefield is not the mind. It is the heart. And that leads to this last thing. Rely on prayer more than persuasiveness. Yes, persuasion is good. The Bible says in the book of Acts that Paul tried to persuade the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Persuasion is not bad. Persuasion is good. But I need to remind you, your persuasiveness isn't going to save anybody. You aren't going to persuade anyone into the kingdom of God. And our persuasion must never take the place of prayer. You start praying for that person. And I mean really praying and fasting for that friend, that neighbor, that classmate, that loved one who doesn't know Christ. And here's what you might discover. You might find out they don't need as much persuading as you thought they did because God is now the one at work in them. Before and after, where are you, to which group do you belong? Would you join me as we pray? Our Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your word and everything that it teaches us, everything that we've learned this morning. And your word makes it very clear that there are two groups of people in the world, that there are those 
who do not believe, and therefore they are already condemned, and who love the darkness because their deeds are evil, and they don't want to be exposed. And then there are those who believe, who are saved, and have eternal life, and they're not condemned, and they come to the light because they practice the truth, and because their works are done in God. You are at work in their lives. We know that everybody in this room and everybody listening to this message belongs to one group or the other. So, Father, first of all, I want to pray for those who are in the before group. God, I pray for them that they would truly see their sin as it really is, that you would, spiritually speaking, turn the light on for them. Help them to see their guilt. Help them to see who they are in light of the righteousness of Jesus Christ compared to a holy God, that by seeing their sin, they would be humbled and turn from it and confess it and repent of it and be saved. And Father, I pray you would help all of us here uh, and those who know Christ to take what we've heard and apply it and to share the gospel knowing that it's not about us, it's not about our ability to argue or persuade And it's not about whether or not we're always able to answer the questions people have for us. It's not about the mind, it's about the heart. And you are able to change hearts and convict hearts and transform hearts. You do that, we don't. And so God, help us to, yes, persuade, but help us even more to pray. And call upon you and trust you to do that change of heart in someone's life. To bring that about. Father, help everyone here who's hearing this message to know how exactly they can and should apply it to their lives. And I pray for those here today who do not know Christ. That yes, this really would be their day of salvation. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.